Chapter 37 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 37. When she again found herself full of animation and hope in the midst of the downcast and silent family, she reproached herself for the severity with which she had secretly blamed the apathy of these deeply afflicted people. Count Christian and the canonists eat almost nothing at breakfast, and the chaplain did not venture to satisfy his appetite, while Amelia appeared to be the victim of a violent fit of ill humor. When they rose from table, the old count stopped for an instant at the window, as if to look at the gravel walk leading to the rabbit warren, by which Albert might return, and drooped his head sadly as if to say, Yet another day has begun badly, and will end in the same manner. Consuelo endeavored to cheer them by playing on the harpsichord some of the latest religious compositions of Porphyra, to which they always listened with peculiar admiration and interest. She was distressed at seeing them so overwhelmed with grief, and at not being able to tell them that she felt some hope. But when she saw the Count take his book, and the canoness her needle, and when she was summoned to the embroidery frame of the latter to decide whether a certain figure should have blue stitches or white in the center, she could not prevent her thoughts from wandering to Albert, who was perhaps dying from fatigue and exhaustion in some corner of the forest, without knowing how to find his way back, or lying on some cold stone, overcome by the fearful attacks of catalepsy, and exposed to the assaults of wolves and snakes, while under the skillful and persevering fingers of the tender Wenceslawa, the most brilliant flowers seemed to grow in thousands on the canvas, watered sometimes by a secret but fruitless tear. As soon as she could exchange a few words with the pouting Amelia, she inquired from her who was that deformed and crazy being who traversed the country, dressed in singular costume, laughing like a child at everyone whom he met. Ah, it is Zdenko, replied Amelia. Did you never meet him before in your walks? One is sure of meeting him everywhere, for he has no fixed dwelling. I saw him this morning for the first time, said Consuelo, and thought that he must be the tutelary genius of the Schreckenstein. It is there, then, that you have been walking since dawn? I begin to think you were slightly crazed yourself, my dear Nina, to wander thus at break of day through desert places where you may encounter worse beings than the inoffensive Zdenko. Some hungry wolf, for instance, replied Consuelo, laughing. It seems to me that the carbine of the baron, your father, should shield all the country with its protection. I speak not merely of wild beasts, said Amelia. The country is not so free as you imagine from the worst animals in creation, viz. brigands and vagabonds. The wars which have just ended have ruined so many families that whole tribes of beggars prowl about, sometimes going so far as to solicit alms 
pistol in hand. There were also swarms of those Egyptian Zingari, whom the French had done us the honor to call Bohemians, as if they were aborigines of our mountains, instead of merely infesting them at the commencement of their appearance in Europe. These people, driven away and repulsed everywhere, although cowardly and obsequious before an armed man, might well be bold with a young girl like you, and I fear that your fancy for adventurous walks will expose you more than become so proper a person as my dear Porporina affects to be. Dear Baroness, replied Consuelo, though you seem to consider the tusks of a wolf as a slight danger compared with those which threaten me, I confess to you that I fear them much more than I do the Zingari. The latter are old acquaintance of mine, and in general, I feel it almost impossible to be afraid of poor, weak, and persecuted beings. It seems to me that I shall always know how to address those people in a way which will secure me their confidence and their sympathy. For ugly, badly dressed, and despised as they are, it is impossible for me not to be particularly interested in them. Bravo, my dear, cried Amelia, with increasing bitterness. I see you completely share Albert's fine sentiments with regard to beggars, robbers, and foreigners, and I shall not be astonished to see you one of these mornings walking as he does and leaning on the rather dirty and very infirm arm of the agreeable Zdenko. These words were as a ray of light to Consuelo, which he had sought from the commencement of the conversation, and which consoled her for the raillery of her companion. Count Albert then lives on good terms with Zdenko, she asked, with an air of satisfaction which he did not even think of concealing. He is his most intimate, his most valued friend, replied Amelia, with a disdainful smile. He is the companion of his walks, the confidant of his secrets, the messenger, it is said, of his correspondence with the devil. Zdenko and Albert are the only persons who would venture to repair at all hours to the Stone of Terra, and there converse on the most naughty points of divinity. Albert and Zdenko are the only persons who are not ashamed to seat themselves upon the grass with the Zingari who halt beneath our fir trees and partake with them the disgusting meal which those people prepare in their wooden porringers. They call that holding communion, and a very low sort of communion it certainly is. Ah, what a husband, what a fascinating lover would my cousin Albert be, when he seized the hand of his betrothed with a hand that had just pressed that of a pestiferous Zingaro, and carried it to those lips which had just drunk the wine of the chalice from the same cup with Zdenko. All this may be very witty, said Consuelo, but for my part, I understand nothing of it. That is because you have no taste for history, returned Amelia, and because you did not listen attentively to all that I related about the Hussites and the Protestants during the last few days that I have been making myself hoarse, explaining scientifically to you the enigmas and absurd practices of my cousin. 
Did I not tell you that the great quarrel between the Hussite and the Roman Church arose respecting the communion in both elements? The Council of Baal decided that there was profanation in giving the blood of Christ to the laity in the element of wine, alleging, Mark the beautiful reasoning, that his body and his blood were contained equal in both elements, and that whoever eat the one drank the other. Do you comprehend? It seems to me that the fathers of the council themselves did not comprehend very well. They ought to have said, if they wished to be logical, that the communion of wine was useless. But profanation? How could that be, if in eating the bread you drank the blood also? It was because the Hussites had a terrible thirst for blood, and the fathers of the council knew it well. The fathers also thirsted for the blood of the people, but they wished to drink it under the element of gold. The poor people revolted and seized, as the price of their sweat and their blood, the treasures of the abbeys and the copes of the bishops. This was the origin of the quarrel, in which mingled afterward, as I have told you, the sentiment of national independence and the hatred of foreigners. The dispute respecting the communion was the symbol of it. Rome and her priests officiated in chalices of gold and jewels. The Hussites affected to officiate in vases of wood in order to censure the luxury of the church and to imitate the poverty of the apostles. This is why Albert, who has taken it into his head to become a Hussite, after these occurrences of the past have lost all value and signification, and who pretends to understand the true doctrine of John Huss better than John Huss himself, invents all sorts of communions, and goes communing on the highways with beggars and simpletons. It was the mania of the Hussites to commune everywhere, at all hours, and with all the world. All this is very strange, replied Consuelo, and can only be explained to my mind by an exalted patriotism, carried in Count Albert, I must confess, even to the extent of fanaticism. The thought is perhaps profound, but the forms he clothes it in seem to be very puerile for so serious and so learned a man. Is not the true communion more properly almsgiving? What meaning can there be in those vain ceremonies which have gone out of use, and which those whom he associates with them certainly do not comprehend? As to almsgiving, Albert is not wanting in that, and if they would give him free scope, he would soon rid himself of those riches which, for my part, I should be very glad to see melt away in the hands of his beggars. And why so? because my father would no longer entertain the fatal idea of enriching me by making me the wife of this maniac. For it is well you should know, my dear Porporina, added Amelia maliciously, that my family has not yet renounced that agreeable design. During these last few days, when my cousin's reason shone like a fleeting ray of sunshine from between the clouds, my father returned to the attack with more firmness than I thought him capable of exhibiting toward me. We had a very animated quarrel, the result of which 
seems to be that they will endeavor to overcome my resistance by the weariness of retirement, like a citadel which an enemy endeavors to reduce by famine. Therefore, if I fail, if I yield to their attacks, I shall be obliged to marry Albert in spite of himself, in spite of myself, and in spite of a third person who pretends not to care the least in the world about it. Oh, indeed, replied Consuelo, laughing. I expected that epigram, and you only granted me the honor of conversing with you this morning in order to arrive at it. I receive it with pleasure, because I see in this little pretense of jealousy the remains of a warmer affection for Count Albert than you are willing to acknowledge. Nina, cried the young baroness energetically, if you imagine you see that, you have but little penetration, and if you see it with pleasure, you have but little affection for me. I am violent, perhaps proud, but certainly not in the habit of dissembling. I have already told you the preference which Albert gives to you irritates me against him, not against you. It wounds my self-love, but it flatters my hope and my inclination. It makes me long that he would, for your sake, commit some great folly which would free me from all circumspection with regard to him. By justifying the aversion against which I have long struggled, and which I now feel for him, without any mixture of pity or love. May God grant, replied Consuelo gently, that this is the language of passion and not of truth, for it would be a very harsh truth in the mouth of a very cruel person. The bitterness which Amelia testified in these conversations made little impression upon Consuelo, generous mind. A few seconds afterward, she thought only of her enterprise, and the dream which she cherished of restoring Albert to his family diffused a kind of pure-hearted joy over the monotony of her occupations. She required this excitement to dissipate the ennui which threatened her, and which, being the malady most opposed and hitherto most unknown to her active and energetic nature, would certainly have been fatal to it. In fact, when she had given her unruly and inattentive pupil a long and tiresome lesson, she had nothing more to do but to exercise her voice and to study her ancient authors. But this consolation, which hitherto had never failed her, was now obstinately disputed. Amelia, with her restless frivolity, came every moment to interrupt and trouble her by childish questions and unseasonable observations. The rest of the family were in deep dejection. Already five long, weary days had passed without the reappearance of the young count, and every day of his absence added to the gloom and depression of the preceding one. In the afternoon, Consuelo, while wandering through the garden with Amelia, saw Sedenko on the other side of the moat, which separated them from the open country. He seemed busy talking to himself, and from the tone of his voice one would have said he was relating a history. Consuelo stopped her companion and asked her to translate what the strange personage was saying. How can you expect me to translate reveries without connection and without meaning, said Amelia, 
shrugging up her shoulders. This is what he has just mumbled, if you are very desirous of knowing. Once there was a great mountain, all white, all white, and by its side a great mountain, all black, all black, and by its side a great mountain, all red, all red. Does that interest you very much? Perhaps it might, if I could know what follows, or what would I not give to understand Bohemian? I must learn it. It is not nearly so easy as Italian or Spanish, but you are so studious that you will quickly master it if you wish. I will teach you, if that will at all gratify you. You are an angel, on the condition, however, that you are more patient as a mistress than as a pupil. And now what does Zdenko say? Now the mountains are speaking. Why, O red, all red mountain, hast thou crushed the mountain all black? And why, O white, all white mountain, hast thou permitted the black, the all black mountain, to be crushed? Here Zdenko began to sing with the thin and broken voice, but with the correctness and sweetness which penetrated Consuela's very soul. His song was as follows. O black mountains and white mountains, you will need much water from the red mountain to wash your robes. Your robes, black with crimes and white with idleness, your robes stained with lies and glittering with pride. Now they are both washed, thoroughly washed, your robes that would not change color. They are worn, well worn, your robes that would not drag along the road. Now all the mountains are red, very red. It will need all the water of heaven, all the water of heaven, to wash them. Is that improvised, or is it an old Bohemian airs? asked Consuelo of her companion. Who knows, replied Amelia. Sedanko is either an inexhaustible improvisator or a very learned rhapsodist. Our peasants are passionately fond of hearing him and respect him as a saint, considering his madness rather as a gift from heaven than as a malady of the mind. They feed and cherish him, and he depends upon himself alone to be the best lodged and the best dressed man in the country, for everyone desires the pleasure and the advantage of having him for a guest. He passes for a bearer of good luck, a harbinger of fortune. When the weather is threatening, if Zdenko happens to pass, they say, Oh, it will be nothing. The hail will not fall here. If the harvest is bad, they ask Zdenko to sing. And as he always promises years of abundance and fertility, they are consoled for the present by the expectation of a more favorable future. But Zdenko is unwilling to dwell anywhere. His wandering nature carries him to the deepest recesses of the forests. No one knows where he is sheltered at night, nor where he finds a refuge against the cold and the storms. Never, for the last ten years, has he been seen to enter under any other roof than that of the castle of the giants, because he pretends that his ancestors are in all the other houses of the country, and that he is forbidden to present himself before them. Nevertheless, he follows Albert to his apartment, for he is as devoted and submissive to Albert as his dog Cynabur. Albert is the only living being who can at will enchain his savage independence, 
and by a word put a stop to his unquenchable gaiety, his eternal songs, and his indefatigable babble. Sidenko formerly had, it is said, a very fine voice, but he has worn it out by talking, singing, and laughing. He is not older than Albert, though he looks like a man of fifty, and they were companions in childhood. At that time, Sidenko was only half-crazed, descended from an ancient family. One of his ancestors makes a considerable figure in the War of the Hussites. He evinced sufficient memory and quickness to induce his parents, taking into view his want of physical strength, to destine him for the cloister. For a long time he wore the dress of a novice in one of the mendicant orders, but they could never succeed in making him submit to their rules, and when he was sent on a circuit with one of the brothers of his convent, and an ass to be loaded with the gifts of the faithful, he would leave the wallet, the ass, and the brother in the lurch, and wander off to take a long vacation in the depths of the forest. When Albert departed on his travels, Sedanko fell into a low and melancholy state, threw off his frock, and became a complete vagabond. His melancholy disappeared by degrees, but the glimmering ray of reason, which had always shone amid the oddities of its character, was entirely extinguished. He no longer talked except incoherently, displayed all sorts of incomprehensible manias, and became really crazy. But as he always continued sober, mild, and inoffensive, he may be termed rather idiotic than mad. Our peasants call him nothing else but the innocent. What you tell me of this poor man inspires me with a warm sympathy for him, said Consuelo. I wish I could talk to him. He knows a little German, does he not? He understands it and can speak it tolerably well. But, like all Bohemian peasants, he has a horror of the language. And beside, when he is absorbed in his reveries, as he is now, it is very doubtful if he will answer when you question him. Then make an effort to speak to him in his own language and to attract his attention to us, said Consuelo. Amelia calls Zdenko several times, asking him in Bohemian if he were well and if he were in need of anything. But she could not once induce him to raise his head, which was bent toward the earth, nor to interrupt a little play he was carrying on with three pebbles, one white, one red, and one black, which he threw at each other, laughing with great glee every time he knocked them down. You see, it is quite useless, said Amelia. When he is not hungry, or is not looking for Albert, he never speaks to us. In one or the other of those cases, he comes to the gate of the castle, and if he is only hungry, he remains at the gate. They then give him what he wants. He thanks them and goes away. If he wishes to see Albert, he enters, goes and knocks at the door of his chamber, which is never closed to him, and there he will remain for whole hours, silent and quiet as a timid child, if Albert is at work, talkative and cheerful if Albert is disposed to listen to him, but never irksome, it would seem to my amiable cousin, and more fortunate in that respect than any member of the family. 
And when Count Albert is invisible, as he is at this moment, for instance, there's Sedenko, who loves him so ardently. Sedenko, who lost all his gaiety when the Count set out on his travels. Sedenko, his inseparable companion, remained tranquil. Does he show no uneasiness? None whatever. He says that Albert has gone to see the great God and that he will soon return. That was what he said when Albert was traveling over Europe and when he had become reconciled to his absence. And do you not suspect, dear Amelia, that Sedenko may have a better foundation than all of you for this apparent security? Has it never occurred to you that he might be in Albert's confidence and that he watches over him in his delirium or lethargy? We did indeed think so, and for a long time, watched all his proceedings. But like his patron, Albert, he detests all watching, and more crafty than a fox when hunted by the dogs, he circumvented all our efforts, baffled all our attempts, and rendered useless all our observations. It would seem that he has, like Albert, the gift of making himself invisible when he pleases. Sometimes he has disappeared instantaneously from the eyes which were fixed upon him, as if he had cloven the earth that it might swallow him up, or as if a cloud had wrapped him in its impenetrable veil. At least this is what is affirmed by our people, and by my aunt, Wenceslala, herself, who, notwithstanding all her piety, has not a very strong head as regards satanic influences. But you, my dear Baroness, cannot believe in these absurdities. For my part, I agree with my Uncle Christian. He thinks that if Albert, in his mysterious sufferings, relies solely on the succor and help of this idiot, it would be very dangerous to interfere with him in any way, and that by watching and thwarting Zdenko's movements, there is a risk of depriving Albert for hours and perhaps for whole days of the care and even of the nourishment which he may receive from him. But for mercy's sake, let us go on, dear Nina. We have bestowed sufficient time on this matter, and yonder idiot does not excite in me the same interest that he does in you. I am tired of his romances and his songs, and his cracked voice almost gives me a sore throat from sympathy. I am astonished, said Consuelo, as she suffered herself to be drawn away by her companion, that his voice is not an extraordinary charm in your ears. Broken as it is, it makes more impression on me than that of the greatest singers. Because you are sated with fine voices and novelty amuses you. The language which he sings has to my ears a peculiar sweetness, returned Consuelo, and his melodies have not the monotony you seem to imagine. On the contrary, they contain very refined and original ideas. Not for me, who have been beset by them, replied Amelia. At first I took some interest in the words, thinking, as do the country people, that they were ancient national songs, and curious in a historical point of view. But as he never repeats them twice in the same manner, I feel certain they are improvisations, and I was soon convinced that they were not worth listening to, although our peasants imagine they find in them a symbolical sense which pleases them. As soon as Consuelo could get rid of Amelia, 
She ran back to the garden and found Zdenko in the same place, on the outside of the moat, and absorbed in the same play. Convinced that this unfortunate being had secret relations with Albert, she had stealthily entered the kitchen and seized a cake made of honey and fine flour, carefully kneaded by the canoness with her own hands. She remembered having seen Albert, who eat very sparingly, show an instinctive preference for this dainty, which his aunt always prepared for him with the greatest care. She wrapped it up in a white handkerchief, and meaning to throw it across the moat to Zatanko, she called to him. But as he appeared not to wish to listen to her, she remembered the vivacity with which he had uttered her name, and she therefore pronounced it in German. Zdenko seemed to hear it, but he was at that moment in one of his melancholy moods, and without looking up, he repeated in German, shaking his head and sighing, Consolation, consolation, as if he would have said, I have no further hope of consolation. Consuelo, then said the young girl, wishing to see if her Spanish name would reawaken the joy he had shown on pronouncing it in the morning. Immediately, Zdenko abandoned his pebbles and began to leap and gamble upon the bank of the moat, throwing up his cap into the air and stretching out his arms to her, uttering some very animated bohemian words with a face radiant with pleasure and affection. Albert, cried Consuelo to him again, as she threw the cake across the moat. Zdenko seized it, laughing, and did not unfold the handkerchief but he said many things which Consuelo was in despair at not being able to understand. She tried to remember one phrase in particular, which he repeated several times, accompanying it by numerous bows and greetings. Her musical ear helped her to seize the exact pronunciation, and as soon as she lost sight of Zdenko, who ran off at full speed, she wrote it upon her tablets, with the Venetian orthography intending to ask Amelia for its meaning. But before leaving Zdenko, she wished to give him something that would testify in the most delicate manner to Albert the interest she felt for him, and having recalled the crazy being who came back obedient to her voice, she threw him a bouquet of flowers which he had gathered an hour before in the greenhouse, and which, still fresh and fragrant, were fastened to her girdle. Zdenko seized it, repeated his salutations, renewed his exclamations and gambles, and then burying himself in the dense thicket where it would have seen that only a hare could force a passage, disappeared entirely. Consuelo followed his rapid flight for a few moments with her eyes by marking the tops of the branches as they moved in a southeasterly direction but a light wind which sprang up rendered her observation useless by agitating all the branches of the coppice, and she re-entered the chateau more than ever bent upon the prosecution of her design. End of chapter 37